Um, Exodus chapter 26, verse 14. Last week, the title of the message was The Beauty of Badger Skin. This is part two of that. The Beauty of Badger Skin. And it's subtitled, you have to listen carefully here to listen to the differences. Um, Sunlight, S-U-N, Light or S O N light. S U N light or S O N light. We have sunlight, S U N, that we all saw this morning coming in here because it's shining brightly today. And then we have S O N light, which is the sun of the living God. The question is that I feel like the Lord is uh, posing of us today is which one are we walking in? Which one are we walking in? We're going to go back and review some things this morning, but if you'll remember that we started out here going in the direction we've been going by making an observation that's very important. And that is that when Nehemiah led a delegation of folks from the Babylonian captivity uh, to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, that that was the third wave of their return. And in the first wave, they rebuilt the temple. And we looked at it and we thought, well, we said, okay, you know, if you were looking at it from a human standpoint, you could make a case that you build the wall first and then the temple uh, to protect the worshipers from within. But in God's divine design, He communicated something to us that I think is critical. And that is that they built the temple first and then built the wall around it. And we're looking at this from the standpoint that <clears throat> the significance it is for us, as it relates to us individually as Christians, that's the order of things for us as well. The significance is to do otherwise is to build the wall in your own strength. So we're all, we're spinning ourselves doing um, spiritual things, things that you couldn't argue with. This is this is important. This nobody would argue with. This is this is the right thing to do. But we're doing it, I'm afraid, oftentimes, more often than not, in our own strength. And so by virtue of the temple and the significance in the New Testament, the New Covenant for us, is the temple is the believer that Christ occupies through the Holy Spirit. And we can either walk in the Spirit and see eternal fruit, or we can uh, flesh things out and slap Jesus' name to spiritual endeavors that nobody would take us to task for pursuing. Anybody would say, well, that's evil. No, it's the right thing to do. But the question is, upon whom we draw and upon strength and wish to do it. So they rebuilt the temple before they rebuilt the wall. Again, to do otherwise would be build the, to build the wall in their own strength. That was God's divine design for the nation to rebuild it, and that's God's divine design for our lives and to make something out of them. And so we're going to use, and we did use, the order and just a small portion of the order of the tabernacle. And I know many of you probably over the years, some of you have been around a long time and probably done some extensive study on the tabernacle. It'll be and probably has one of the greatest studies you'll ever endeavor to, to, to be involved in the, in the Word of God. It's just marvelous. And we, uh, we think of Mount Sinai. When we think of Mount Sinai, we think of the Ten Commandments and probably Charlton Heston, um, Cecil B. Mills, and all that, you know, the epic movie. And he's going up there on the, on the uh, mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And it's all there and all the glory and, and reverential fear. And it's all true. But while Moses was up there on the Mount Sinai, God also gave him something else. 
and gave them instructions regarding the tabernacle. Because He gave them a law He knew they couldn't keep and a sacrificial system for appeasing His righteous judgment for breaking it to communicate to us law, God's just, tabernacle, God's a Savior. Sound familiar? So He gave the law and the Lamb at the same time. And in so doing that, communicated to us His character and nature and how He's going to be approached and how mankind's going to be saved and it's going to be through the death of a substitute. And that substitute is not just any substitute, but it's Jesus Christ. And we looked at last week the order of the tabernacle and a certain portion of it that we really wanted to zone in on. We could do messages and studies on the tabernacle from now for 60 years and never scratch the surface of it. I'm not trying to... There's going to be some things that we're going to overlook that are just teeming with truth that points to Jesus Christ. But just a couple of things that we want to zone in on this morning. And we're going to lift that from beginning at Genesis. I'm in Exodus chapter 26, verse 14. Have your Bibles handy. And get ready because we're going to go all over the place with them this morning. So be ready. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we pray that you will open up our hearts to what you would say this morning. We care nothing about what I got to say, but we're very much interested, I pray, in what you've got to say. May you speak. You are speaking. The question is whether or not we're listening. And I pray you'll give us ears to hear that you will break up the fertile ground of our hearts, till up the soil so the word finds its way easily into the bottom of it, rather than. Um, just staying up on top. Or being choked out by cares and things that we have a tendency to distract us and misplaced priorities. I pray you will just help us to focus on you by the power and work and witness of your Holy Spirit. In the sweet name of Jesus we pray. Amen. One simple verse. Exodus chapter 26 verse 14. In the tabernacle, after you pass by the outer gate, the bronze labor, but the bronze altar and then the bronze labor, you come to the tabernacle. And the Bible says in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 26, when God instructed him to make the tabernacle, He said, You shall make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent and a covering of badger skins above that. And so we have the tabernacle here in the middle. And we looked at last week that in order to get to the tabernacle, you have to come through one gate. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. We come then to the first furnishing in the tabernacle, which is the bronze altar. We observed that the bronze altar is a picture of the cross. That's where our relationship was purchased. That's where we enter into relationship. It's through the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Then, once you move beyond the bronze altar, you come to the bronze labor. And the bronze labor is positioned just before you go into the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And the bronze labor represents confession. It represents fellowship. At the bronze altar, we see relationship. At the bronze labor, we see fellowship. And that's the prelude in order to enter into intimate communion that only takes place inside the holy place. Right there. Right there. The tabernacle tent. And we saw from John 19, 1934 that when Jesus Christ was on the cross and the soldier, uh, the Roman soldier, pierced his side, out came what? Blood and water. Blood, symbolic of the... I mean, blood that purchased our relationship and water that ensures our fellowship. So the water here at the bronze labor, at the bronze labor right there, and that's water in that labor, and we saw last week that the bronze labor is one of three of the furnishings in the tabernacle. It's made out of solid brass. There's no combinations there. It's solid brass. And we observed that last week that brass in the Bible is symbolic of judgment. And the bronze labor is the believer who's in, obviously, relationship, who is ready to move on into deep communion. And at that place, he or she gets an opportunity to judge God, our sin in our life before God has to do it. You'll remember the story of Achan and Joshua um, that uh, they had just come off a big 
victory of Jericho. God gave them a supernatural victory. Then they come to this little teeny-weeny city called Ai. And they wind up suffering a defeat there. And the reason they suffered a defeat there is because some of the spoils or the booty from Jericho was taken by a family. And that was uh, contrary to God's specific commands not to take anything to yourself. And so there was sin in the camp. And you'll remember that God assembled all the people together. He told Joshua to quit praying. I'm telling you right now, I know it's the only time in the Bible I've ever seen anybody told, told not to pray. And Joshua said, get up, Joshua. There's no need to make an appeal. There's problems. There's sin in the camp. And I'm going to show it to you. And I'm going to reveal it to you. And so they took the whole nation and put them out in front. And he called them. Here's how he did it. He said, I want to call them by tribe, by clan, by family, and then by household. So the whole nation gets called out. And then God narrows the focus to a clan. Because he knows the sin exists within that clan. Then he narrows the focus to a family because he knows the sin exists within that family. And then he narrows it to a household because he knows the sin exists within that household. Let me ask you a question. The sovereign God of the universe who knows everything did not need to go to a process like that to determine where the sin was. Why would he do it that way? He would do it that way because he gave Achan an opportunity to repent and judge it before he did. What did Achan do? He remained silent. But he knew it was coming. Can you imagine how many must have been trembling with his family in tow, knowing that the focus is narrowing and it's pointing right to him? The Lord's Supper today, we'll have the Lord's Supper. And the Lord, in the process of examination, will give us an opportunity to judge unconfessed sin in our life right now. And if that unconfessed sin has gone unchecked, He'll judge it. Not in final judgment, but in divine discipline. So God's a merciful God. You know why He does that? Because He wants to have us to have an opportunity to enter into the intimate communion. So between the altar and the labor, we have a believer that's a believer who's in, but not yet in the place of intimate communion. See, you're, you're, you're in, but you're not in. you're saved, but you're not in communion with the Lord, in the deep, intimate fellowship that He wants us to have. So the washing needs to take place at the bronze laver, and it's a place of judgment because the priests, before they went in, picked up some things along the way. There was dirt on their feet, and there was blood on their hands. Sacrifices. And, And we know that the tabernacle didn't have a floor. So this is earthly truth. In other words, it has earthly implications, but it's spiritual in its influence. So the washing needed to be play, take place because they had dirty hands and feet. Now, in the Bible, we talked about last week, when the Bible speaks of water, as far as drinking, it's speaking of who? The Holy Spirit. When it speaks of water, as far as cleansing, it's speaking of what? The Bible. The Word became flesh, Jesus, but the Bible, the Scriptures, and the Scriptures search our hearts. God uses the Scriptures to illuminate our hearts to see where we're standing with Him so that He understand, we understand whether or not we're in right fellowship and whether or not we're in communion with Him. Now, as you get ready to enter into the place of intimate communion, you have a place that's got gold on the inside of it. Magnificent! But none of that can be seen by the courtyard. None of it. From the courtyard perspective, it's a dull, drab, boring structure. You know why? Because it's covered with badger skin. Beneath it is ram skin, symbolic of the Lamb of God who was shed, and it's red. But above it, you have this covering that's boring and a brownish-gray covering that's made of what we learned last week Porpoise skin. Where did they get the porpoise skin from? Egypt. Before they went out of Egypt, they got it. What they use it for? Aside from building this, covering this tabernacle, they use the porpoise skins to make sandals. And the sandals that they made, God graciously strengthened them so that in 40 years of wilderness wanderings, their sandals never wore out. It's a tough material, to say the least. And so God has them drape the tent of meeting with the badger skin. <clears throat> extreme, extreme 
weather. Very hot in the daytime, very cold at night. You need something tough to cover what's in. But also, I think it is also a test. It's a test to see if we're going to operate by faith or we're going to operate by sight. Are we going to meander around in the courtyard and be satisfied with that and view intimate fellowship as something that's boring and drab and not worth our consideration? Not worth our death? Or are we going to or are we going to move in because we want Jesus so bad that we can't stand it? We have a spiritual appetite. I have to tell you this. Much of what we do in modern church life is to dress up the place of communion on the outside in order to accommodate courtyard believers and woo them into thinking and deceive them into thinking that they've been in when they haven't been in. Did you hear that? Much of what we do in modern day church life is we feel compelled to dress up the tabernacle because it's, it's dull on the outside. To the casual observer, it's dull. It is. And so we dress it up on the outside and we fool courtyard believers into thinking they've been in when they haven't been in. See, in sun, now we observed it, and this is a cutaway. Spitzer, go back, go to the one picture of the whole the whole thing, if you will. See right there? Before you go into the tent, we observed this last week. You're operating by S U N light. It's the same light that a non believer on the outside operates under. Same thing. Same level of illumination. It means this. It means that you'll make your decisions and you'll assess things with the same carnal reasoning that you assess them before you ever got saved. Much of what it is in ministry is to counsel people to do things based on the Word of God that do not make sense. to a courtyard believer. But to a communion believer, it makes total sense. Because a communion believer is operating under S-O-N. Light. Because see, in the tent is where Christ is seen, known, and communed with. It's inside the tent. See, the wisdom of the world is earthly, fleshly, and demonic. And, but the wisdom that's from above is peaceable, willing to yield, pure and full of good fruits. We're told in James chapter 3, verse 13. The courtyard believer. See, I, I, I believe, let's look at just some things that maybe will prompt by the power of God's Word and the Holy Spirit to determine this morning whether or not you're walking... Just you, don't think about anybody else, but whether or not you're walking in S-U-N light or whether or not you're walking in S-O-N light. Let's just look at a few. One is right there. Are you making your decisions based on carnal reasoning or wisdom from above? Because see, those two don't agree. They're not in agreement. And they never will be. A biblically informed path or an informed path based on conscience, feeling, and the Bible thrown in every now and then. See, the sun, S-U-N, light believer, operates in natural strength. But the S-O-N, light believer, operates in eternal supernatural strength. See, the Bible says that the flesh cannot please God. Someone who's in the flesh cannot please God. The Bible goes on to say that the flesh and the Spirit are at enmity with one another. It doesn't say they're enemies. It says they're at enmity with one another. Enemies can be reconciled. When you're at enmity, it means there's no reconciliation possible. That's a condition that's eternal and will never change. 
God says it can't work through the flesh, won't work through the flesh. But yet the sunlight believer, S-O-N, goes into intimate communion and there he finds out an important principle and it's this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. You're familiar with this passage of Scripture. You'll have to turn there fast because we're going to go all over the place. 2 Corinthians 12. Let's look at verse 7. The Apostle Paul said, Unless I be, should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And He said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, and in persecutions, and in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Uh, S-O-N, like believer, celebrates weakness. An S-U-N, like believer, disdains them. An S-O-N, like believer, has pressed into a truth. And that is this. God is attracted to weakness. God is attracted to weakness. They move into communion. And that moving into communion, it is in part precipitated by a desire to be in communion as an act of worship, but it's also in part precipitated by desperation. Communion believers, sun light, S-O-N light believers, have come to the place where they realize, I can do nothing apart from you. I'm spent. I've worked on this wall for years and I am done. You gave me some spiritual objectives to accomplish and I'm here to tell you they are wearing me out and I'm done because I've got the order wrong. I've got the order wrong. I've lost my way. I have... I have building walls of protection around my family for fellowship, but I have forgot the fellowship. A courtyard believer is dangerous to the gospel. Dangerous to the work of the church. A courtyard believer who stays there now, I'm talking about somebody who loiters there, is dangerous to the cause of Christ. Because they confess to have a communion that their life gives no evidence of or little evidence of. And so therefore, they're into dressing up on the outside to make up for what's not seen from them that arises from the inside. So just like the church in our modern day culture is, is given to dressing up and putting something on that badger skin to make it look more appealing, the individual believer who's in the courtyard is given to the same thing. I've got to pretend. I've got to put on. I know enough of Christianese to speak it around Christianese people and I can get away with it and make you think I'm walking with God, give some evidence that I know Him and that I'm in the deep things of God and the deep weeds with Him and I've been with Him and I've walked with Jesus and we're dressing up on the outside that which does not, does not fool God on the inside. The Bible says in Titus chapter 2, Let's go there. In Titus chapter 2, our lives, watch this now. Our lives. Verse 9. We have to start back there to get the whole feel of it. In, or, in exhortation to employees, it says, bond servants, exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters. To be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity. Watch this. That they may adorn the doctrine of our God, of God our Savior in all things. I'm going to tell you something right now. A believer in communion has to just be to make look Christ attractive. A believer in communion carries with them the fragrance of Christ. It makes Christ look attractive. The Bible says we're, that means to dress it up. It means to give glory to the doctrine of our God and Savior. To adorn the gospel itself. 
a believer in the courtyard operates by sight. And a believer in communion operates by faith. A believer in the courtyard perceives things around them the same as lost people do. A believer in the courtyard is given to their feelings. We've talked about it time and time again and said for this pulpit, when your feelings don't line up with the truth, go with the truth. A courtyard believer wrestles. A communion believer nestles. Corey, our believer has to have something to trump them up. They have to have something to prop them up because they've not found out the grace of Christ in communion to fill them up. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Oh, dear ones. Apostle Paul. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Apostle Paul was a Communion believer. He wasn't a courtyard believer. He said, everything I'm going through right now for the cause of the Gospel is temporary. But I know it's filling up that which is lacking. Not in effectiveness, but ongoing in the suffering of Christ as long as His body is on this earth. Not so with the courtyard believer. The courtyard believer says this. Seeing is believing. Communion believer says, believing is seeing. The courtyard believer is affected by the weather. If you're out there and a storm comes up, a tempest, a cloud over the horizon and dumps right there because this is open air, it's right there. And if God sends a rain, that affects a courtyard believer. But for one who's entered in, He doesn't escape the weather. He's just protected in it. He goes through the weather, but he's not influenced by it. He said, you know what? Let it come what may. Let the oceans, as Rachel saying this morning, do what they do and put me in the middle of it because my God reigns. And he's in charge of how high that goes and how low that goes. The Bible says that God is in charge of contrary wind. It blows at His discretion with intensity that He's over and longevity that's His call. So a believer in communion is right in the middle of the rain. But the believer in the courtyard is scrambling around. The believer in communion is protected because he's in fellowship with the Lord who sent the rain. The believer in the courtyard covers things up. The believer in communion exposes them. Much of our reluctance to share the gospel is because of the resistance that those have toward it when the light is turned on in their dark world. I shared the gospel with a guy yesterday, and he said, uh, or Friday, and I said, uh, he said, I believe, I've got to where now I'm running into people that not just say I'm good enough to go to heaven, they're just saying, I believe I'm going to hell, but. It doesn't, you know, I'm not going to do anything about it. And I said, I'm going to be honest with you, really, if you really believe that, I mean, you know, you're giving lip service to that, but let me tell you what's happening to you. You're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And I'll tell you what that means. You love your sin so much and you get so much enjoyment of it that everything you know about God and coming judgment, you've got to suppress and press down because it gets in the way of your enjoyment of your sin. And that will be to your peril because once that happens, you don't schedule your death. And it's going to happen. And what happens, you're going to stand in front of the judgment of God and it's all because of your love for your sin. Turn on light. And I didn't say it in a way that like I felt good about it. 
But turn on the light. Look what the Bible says. When you're in communion, you don't care how it's received. The message is offensive, but the messenger must never be. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. What's in the, in the, in the tabernacle? But the lampstand. And the lampstand is the light of Christ. And the lampstand is fueled by the oil. And the oil is what? The Holy Spirit. And it gives illumination to a place that is gold-laden all around. Magnificent on the inside. But very dull and unappealing on the outside. That light exposes the truth about Christ and who He is. The gospel starts not with the character and nature of man, but the gospel starts with the character and nature of God. And once we proclaim the character and nature of God, that exposes the condition of men and hopes that they will run to the cross of Calvary by the Holy Spirit drawn by Him and repent and throw themselves on the mercy of the court. Hallelujah. Boy, our believers are double-minded. They're caught between two opinions. When you're up, you're up. And when you're down, you're down. But when you're neither halfway up, you're neither up nor down. I'm sorry. When you're only halfway up, you're neither up nor down. Dear ones, if you're in the courtyard, slap on a jersey and pick a team. Make a choice. Make a choice. They're double-minded and they're a roller coaster. Their, their Christian life is a roller coaster. It explains why we'll see some in fellowship for a while and then they fall off and then this, that, there, yonder, here, all over, this, this, just like this, just like this, all over the place. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, and it's not a far trip from where we were, so turn back over there with me. Look what it says in Ephesians 4, 14. We want to grow up in the full measure of the stature of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried out by about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting but speaking in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Dear ones, uh, S-O-N, light believe. Won't you listen to this now? Listen to me now. Not to me but what the Lord would say to us about the character and nature of this great salvation. The believer in S-O-N light has come to discover something that seems to be a secret, but yet God has revealed. Let me tell you why it seems to be a secret. Because for a majority of the believers... They live their lives in the courtyard. And we hardly ever see it. So it seems secretive. There must be a combination. And so we put our ear up to it and say, you know what, I can't crack that safe. And we're listening and we're trying to... What am I saying? Here's the secret. 
his labor. You come to saving faith when you realize that Christ gave his life for us. Is that right? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Our sins according to the scriptures. But the appetite to move on and move further, which is given by the Holy Spirit. When you come to the labor, when you come to the place of communion, This is when you begin to discover that Christ gave His life to us. At the altar, He gave His life for me. But in deep communion, I realize He gave His life to me. You can sum up the new covenant in seven words. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the new covenant. Now we can meander around the courtyard. move in. We can be lured into a trap of thinking that says whatever we're keeping in the courtyard that's keeping us in communion is worth it. Charlatans will come and go and abuse this book and the people that listen to them by saying you want to move in because if you get in there Your problems are over. You're done! All the rest of these people with weak faith who are walking around in the courtyard, they'll, they'll have diseases, they'll have this, that, another hanging up, stuff like that. Not you! Not you. You go into communion and it's nothing but prosperity. Oh, man. Oh, when the God turns the light on the communion, man, you're going to float to heaven on a bed of ease, comfort, and pleasure. Now stay with me. The altar gave his life for you. In communion, he gave his life to you. And then, when you go in, all you want is him. Whatever that means. It doesn't matter what it means. It doesn't matter if I live in a hut. It doesn't matter if I'm called to live in a hut. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just get me to Him. Of all the gifts that God could give you, can you name one that's even fit to put in this category? Can you name a close competitor? Can you come up with something? I don't even offer, I don't even want to offer suggestions because it makes it sound so puny to draw such a foolish contrast. What is it that's keeping you in the courtyard? You won't live in the courtyard. I'll tell you this a life full of courtyard wonderings could give rise to legitimate questions as to whether or not you even live in the courtyard. Or are you still outside drawing from the same supply and the same strength from unregenerate people draw from? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question. You ever notice that we say this? Let's, let's clean up, let's make our language biblical if we can. And don't take me to task for sending me emails or cutting the tires on my truck for saying this. But I want you you to listen to me now. We'll say, 
Well, so-and-so surrendered their life to Jesus. So-and-so gave their life to Jesus. Salvation. That's not true. Salvation is when you receive life from Jesus in the life of Jesus. Salvation is receiving Jesus because apart from Jesus, there is no life. Now, once we get in, the surrender comes because when we get in communion, we realize that what's left of our lives, in a practical sense, gets in the way of experiencing more of Him. So we die a death that is joyful. It is an exquisite exercise of the cross of Christ. We at the bronze labor experience the work of the Christ of the cross for us. But in the place of communion, we come in to experience the work of the cross in us. Because beyond that is the life of Christ. The resurrected life of Christ. We go into the tabernacle and we go in and we illuminate it. We see the table of showbread. We see the place of prayer. And then we go into the most holy place. And what do we see? We see the throne of God with who? The Son of God at God's right hand who ever lives to make intercession for us. We realize that Christ laid down His life to pick it up again only to give it to you and me. That's why the believer is eternally secure. If I can lose my standing with God, it means Christ lost it. Because it's His standing with God, I rest. I want to shout. I want to run around the building. If I wasn't so worn out, I believe I'd do it. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Hallelujah to His glorious name. You need to make a choice. Do you want to walk in the S-U-N light? Or do you want to walk in the S-O-N light? Let me tell you this. When you're walking in S-O-N light, S-O-N light, I'll tell you one thing to expect. What you receive in communion will not be understood by those who are in the courtyard. That's right. What you receive in communion will not be received by those in the courtyard. I marvel at the amount of marital counseling I've done when believers would counsel a woman or a man when they've come into hard problems to leave their wife or husband. I marvel at that. And I've seen pastors do it. You know why? Because they're not in communion. Because when you're in communion, you give communion counsel. And believers who are in the courtyard don't understand it. The pain's been too much. It's gone on long enough. You've hurt long enough. The trial's been long enough. It's time for this to end. This is not fair. Dear ones, that's spoken by courtyard believers who may not even be believers at all. And I guess you could sum it up by this. A courtyard believer, if they're a believer at all, walks in phileo. And a communion believer walks in agape. For a courtyard believer, I'm telling you something right now. Courtyard believers give churches more of a fit than anybody else. Because for them, the church is for them. It's all about me. I'm the center of my world and you just happen to be in it. But it belongs to me. Church belongs to me. You're supposed to pander to my appetites, my desires, and what I think. I have to be guarded all the time from receiving counsel from people who are walking in the courtyard. Because they can come up with some of the best ideas you've ever heard. I've got people who won't speak to me because they don't understand what I've got in communion. I'm talking about Believers just for having the children in the worship service. And I said, well, tell me in the Scriptures where we're wrong. Well, it just doesn't make sense. You'll not be able to grow a church that way. What you're doing is foolish. I've had a pastor tell me what you're doing is foolish. Maybe so. But I can tell you this. There'll be dark days to come. And some days you'll doubt you're right. 
but never doubt in the darkness truths you've learned in the light. Phileo is the love that gives and takes. Agape is the love that gives. Period. Period. Let me ask you a question. In Titus chapter 2, it says that older women are supposed to teach younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. Now, based on the fact that I am a husband, and most of y'all know me, I can really understand why somebody had to come along and help my wife love me at times. I get that. But that someone would have to come along and help my wife love her children? Hmm. Doesn't that kind of come natural? Even pagan mothers, don't pagan mothers love their children in general? But look at the underlying words. It says, teach your wives to agape their husbands and to agape their children. Not to teach it to a filio, a phileo. You don't have to teach that. But you have to teach them to agape him. But let me tell you what happens in communion. The world will promise you, and charlatans who take this book and abuse it, and the people that listen to them will, will promise you. Here's what the scriptures promise you. You know what happens when you go into the place of deep communion and you get illuminated? You know what happens there? Transcendent joy. Absolutely. But you know what you're sure to get if you're a communion Christian? Guaranteed. This is great. You're promised it. And I'm going to be faithful to the Scriptures to declare to you what you're promised. Believers who walk in S-O-N light, who are in communion, are promised suffering. That's what they're promised. That's it. Suffering. Hallelujah! That's it. Did you know that's it? That's what's promised. That's what's promised. Some of you, I'm looking at your faces right now, you know what that's like. You know what that's like. You know what it's like for your marriage to fall apart. And you still remain faithful to Christ. Because you moved into a place of communion, got illuminated there and said, the suffering that goes along with it, so be it. So be it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Illumination. Understanding. Communion. Tabernacle. Christ. In Him. With Him. Adoring Him. But you recall the former days in which after you were what? Illuminated, enlightened. What happened to you? You endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. And you can you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not, in the midst of all of this, cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Forget a little while, and He who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Romans chapter 8. 14 to 18. Follow with me if you will. Dear ones. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. What's the, what's the Spirit of God going to lead you to? 
before you see it, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Watch if indeed we suffer with Him that we may also be glorified together. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. What does God lead the Spirit of God, the sons of God, to? Suffering. Well, we'll stop there. We'll go back to it in a minute. Look at Luke chapter 24. Jesus on the road to Emmaus, one of the most precious passages in all the Bible. He's revealing Himself to Him, but He's assessing things that are happening in Jerusalem because they're disillusioned. They don't know what to think. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He's saying that to you. Ought not you have to suffer these things? For a communion saint, the answer to that, yes. 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 You know how we stay in so little trouble with the world? Most of us are not in trouble with the world. We don't have anybody that's aggravated at us right now, probably more than likely for sharing the gospel with them or loving them. You know why? Because we're in the courtyard. And courtyard people get along real well with people who are not in it. No problem. High five. Hey, buddy. Jesus said, you're going to deal with hostility from sinners. Hostility. But we've shut up. See, a communion believer has made a value judgment. That which I found in communion more than makes up for the suffering that I have that arises from it. It's more than made up for it. Matter of fact. <laughs> Brer Rabbit, you know, throw me in the fire patch. Don't, I mean, don't throw me in the fire patch. Whatever you do, don't throw me in the fire patch. Don't do that. And he was foolish enough to hurl him right in there. The devil, you know, is working to do that. And then he gets in there and says, you made a huge mistake because I was born I'll tell you something right now. Your faith was forged on the cross of Calvary in the place of greatest suffering. And we've been to the briar patch. You throw me in it. All I can do is thrive, not just survive. After you're illuminated, this is what you can expect. But guess what kind of suffering it is? It's the kind of suffering that's redemptive in nature. What it means is that those around me that watch me patiently endure the suffering because I'm in communion with the Lord get to see an accurate picture of Jesus. That's what they get to see. Ooh, He looks like that. I'm asking you. I'm asking you. We, we put so much emphasis on apologetics. And we've never been so apologetic for our faith. Because we've placed emphasis on apologetics. And, and so much so. And you know what? That's okay. It has its place. But let me tell you this. Apologetics is when somebody comes up to you and taps you on the shoulder and says, Paul, why? What is the reason for the hope that you have? And I dare say, I bet we seldom get asked that. Why do you have so much hope? What's wrong with you? This is, this is crazy that you would have this. You're doing crazy things, but it seems to bring you joy. What's up with that? Because see, and we'll close with this. We're about to have the Lord's Supper. A believer in the courtyard tries to escape suffering. But a believer 
in communion evaluates it. He evaluates it. What, because see, the courtyard is, okay, I'm going to dodge that bullet. I'm putting that off. Don't put me in that. Don't ask me to do this. Don't ask me to do that. I, I get so sick over the years of hearing somebody say, be careful that you tell God you know, you'll do whatever He says because He might call you to Africa. Praise God! Let's go to Africa. If that's where communion is for me, let's go. Saddle the donkey. Get the plane ticket. Let's go. What foolishness it is to characterize communion with God like that. That's courtyard, that's courtyard reasoning. That is not from the Lord. I pray every day for my children. I said, God, send them out as, as uh, laborers into the harvest field of ministry and I could not care less where that is as long as they're following you. If I never get to see them again when they get on the airplane, if they're in communion with you and they're in fellowship with you, so be it. Because they're not mine anyway. We're, we're, we have, we're full of carnal reasoning. That's carnal reasoning. Oh, better not ask God for patience. He might give it to you. <laughs> I had a guy say one time in a meeting, a staff meeting, one of our, one of our staff meeters said, uh, I don't have to give the mercy. I'm a prophet. I have no mercy. And I thought to myself, I didn't say it. I probably should have said it. I said, well, you just confess that you don't want to be remotely like Jesus. Because He's full of it. He's full of mercy. You're abusing that gift. Because if it's used without mercy, it just points to you. If it's used with mercy, it points to Him. I don't want patience. I don't want to be like Jesus. I don't care about it. Give me in the courtyard. So the courtyard believer is spends his life not only trying to live the life in their own strength, but they spend their life trying to avoid suffering and pain and difficulty. And you can only do that for so long. It'll wear you out. So they escape. But yet the court, your communion believer evaluates it. You know what the evaluation is? And we'll close. Romans 8. Verse 18. Evaluate. Paul evaluated this. Paul pondered this. This this word right here, when it says, for I consider, that word consider, that means that he has spent, the word underneath that means he spent a considerable amount of time in strong, meditation before the Lord about what He's about to say. I have pondered this. I have thought this through. I have evaluated this. And here's the conclusion. That the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Ponder it, dear ones. Ponder it. Ponder it right now. Are you in a relationship with Him? Relationship means you're repenting toward God and put faith in Jesus Christ. That means you can sit at the Lord's table. And in communion with Him, we can take partake of the Lord's Supper. This is, this is the opportunity. This is the new covenant equivalent to Achan. But we're not going to get stoned. Achan got stoned in the Valley of Achor with his family and everything he had got burned. Because he wouldn't own up to the sin before God had to expose it. In the Lord's Supper, we got an opportunity to own up to it. Lord, I'm in a relationship, but I want to be in fellowship. I'm going to ask you to personally examine me right now and illuminate my heart. And after I receive the illumination, I'm going to suffer. I know that. There's going to be suffering that comes with it. But that could be making it right with somebody I'm bitter toward. It could be having to make a phone call and humble myself for somebody that I've really offended or talked about behind their back. Or It could be a billion different things, but God will show you. And He'll show you and He'll let you move into that place of communion. Dear God, would we not be courtyard saints operating under S-U-N light when we come to a place where we're saints in communion and we operate by S-O-N light. Brian's going to come.
And he'll, let's pray before he does. Search our hearts, oh God, see if there's any anxious thought or offensive way in us. It leads us into the way of everlasting. Thank you, Jesus. In your sweet name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>